This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Democrats had a big day on Tuesday. In Kentucky, Democratic Governor Andy Bashir won re-election. Kentucky made a choice. A choice not to move to the right or to the left, but to move forward for every single family. And in Ohio, voters approved a ballot measure that adds protection for abortion rights to the state's constitution. On Point listener Patty Dallas in Yellow Springs, Ohio, celebrated. I'm pleased to live in a state where people truly care for each other, and we've shown that we don't want the government to interfere with our personal decisions. In Virginia, Democrats took control of the state's House of Delegates and now hold the majority in the legislature. They'll have to work with Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin. And school board races were on many ballots across the country, too, where voters rejected extreme candidates. For some leading Republicans in Congress, the message was loud and clear. North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis said, quote, Yesterday to me was a complete failure. He said that on Wednesday. Utah Senator Mitt Romney, quote, I don't think it's a big secret in many states abortion is not a winning issue for Republicans, end quote. But the internal tensions within the Republican Party were also loud and clear. In Ohio, where voters passed those abortion protections, state Senate President Matt Huffman said, quote, This is not the end. This is just the beginning of a revolving door of ballot campaigns to repeal or replace issue one. Then... There's Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Her extreme wing of the party proved its power in the recent ousting of former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. She suggested GOP losses were due to the party not being radical enough. Quote, Republicans are losing voters because the base is fed up with weak Republicans who never do anything to stop the communist Democrats, she said. Quote, the Republican Party has only a short time to change their weak ways. Well, this week's election has particularly a state and local focus. It was not a presidential election year. So now that the dust has settled over the past few days, really, what clues do this week's election results hold for Democrats and Republicans when it comes to 2024 and beyond? Well, we're going to start back in Virginia with Delegate Don Scott. He's the Democratic leader in Virginia's House of Delegates, where he represents the 88th House District. He was previously the minority leader, but could become the state's first black Speaker of the House. He won re-election on Tuesday. Leader Scott, welcome to On Point. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, first of all, tell me, I've been reading sort of conflicting things about whether Democrats expected to have this huge win uh, in the Virginia state legislature or if it came as something of a surprise. What do you think? I can tell you what I thought. I expected it because I'd been talking to voters for the last year and a half since I take, took over as leader. And what I knew was that the majority of Virginia voters, uh, men and women, did not want the government interfering with their most personal, intimate decisions with their own bodies. And so I knew that that issue around reproductive health care and abortion was going to be a huge issue. And I expected the voters to reject uh, this new version of uh, MAGA Republican extremism. Uh, again, I don't know. Uh, I think the governor tried to repackage it. I call it MAGA light. And so I think uh, voters rejected MAGA and then they rejected MAGA light. They want um, uh, politicians and folks in government to move to the middle in a bipartisan way to get 
uh, things done and help them with solutions in their everyday lives. Mm. Now, how do you compare that um, sort of overall sentiment that voters carried with them into voting booths this week to what also seemed like a sense of uh, frustration and uh, anger at uh, at politicians that drove uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin to his victory a couple of years ago. I mean, is it just that Virginia voters are frustrated overall, or is the pendulum really shifting here? Magna, I think what really happened is that the pandemic uh, played a huge role in what happened in 2021 that brought the governor in. I think we underestimate the impact of uh, the trauma of losing over a billion Americans uh, being shut down, uh, the frustration with that, uh, with schools being shut down. I think that was a response and a pendulum swing as a response to a lot of heavy-handed government intervention that probably had to happen to save lives. And I think that was a, that played a huge role. And now I think we've come back to some normalcy here. And I think Virginia is still a very purple state. I think people mm-hmm. forget that the House of Delegates, where I serve, was held by Republicans for 20 years straight up until 2020 uh, when we flipped the House. And then it went back to Republicans and now it's back to Democrats. It's been Republican for 22 of the last 24 years. And so I think folks need to understand that across the country that within these 100 districts, it's very, very purple. And uh, and I'm not surprised that it was a close fight, but I expected to win. I planned to win. We we all ran a great campaign, great field program against a formidable, formidable opponent uh, who um, the likes of which we've never seen in Glenn Youngkin, who was able to raise uh, millions and millions of dollars, sometimes from one donor at a time. We've never seen anything like that in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So to have overcome a formidable opponent like Glenn Youngkin, I think, uh, speaks highly to the message and the principles and the values that we think resonate with voters here. Well, Leader Scott, let me just ask you for um, one point of clarification, because coming back to what you said first about voters sending a clear message about their views, um, or at least the majority of voters on their views on uh, uh, on reproductive rights, uh, was it that uh, Governor Yunkin was, uh, was proposing some kind of limitation on abortion rights in Virginia? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that played a huge role that he wanted to uh, he proposed a 15-week ban that he said his words, quote-unquote, a consensus. I just think he forgot to talk to women about it, about this consensus viewpoint. And I think even the races that we uh, didn't win, they were very, very close. And so we know that, you know, as we continue to move forward, we're going to be much, much more competitive here and continue to um grow our majority here in Virginia. Mm. Okay, so a couple more questions here about um, how the Democrats' strong showing uh, in Virginia on Tuesday, how you might take that forward in terms of, well, now you have to govern, govern, excuse me, with Governor Youngkin. Do you have a strategy for that? Is, you know, you've said a couple of times that Virginia is indeed a purple state. So is there a common ground that uh, you think uh, Democrats in the legislature uh, and Glenn Youngkin can find? I think so. I think um, there are issues that the voters have told us that they care about, that they want us to work on around economic development, around making sure that our teachers are paid at the national average, which Virginia, as wealthy as our state is, we don't pay our teachers uh, at the, they're below the na- national average. I think we can build our, our, our crumbling infrastructure in schools. I think the public wanted us to invest in public education. The governor had proposed a $1 billion ongoing tax cut for corporations that didn't ask for it. And we, the, the voters clearly rejected that. 
we have a different vision. And I think the governor is going to come on board to help us really make an investment in our infrastructure with our schools. I think that this message to him was like, you can govern and do the right thing and still be true to your conservative values. And I think voters want us to come together on these issues. And I think we will be able to come together, making sure that we uh, address our opioid addiction crisis, make sure that we deal with our gun violence epidemic that's going on not only here in Virginia, but across the country, make sure that we uh, do what we can to take these uh, these weapons of war off the streets, reinforce and strengthen our red flag laws here. Mm. Every Republican in the House of Delegates voted to repeal our red flag laws, even in the face of the mass shootings that we're seeing every day. Right. And so I believe that the governor will not fight that again and that we can we won't litigate that again. We can continue to strengthen those red flag laws. So I think there are things that, you know, it used to be these were common sense ideas, but because of our politics now, they've become polarizing. And I think Democrats are on the, in the middle on these issues. We're in the center and we're hoping that the Republicans will meet us in the middle where I think most Virginians are. Mm. Well, as you know, Leader Scott, we actually have uh, quite a few listeners in Virginia, and they sent us their thoughts over the past couple of days. Not all of them were happy with the results of the election uh, in Virginia. Uh, First of all, let's listen to to what this listener said. Yeah, as a Virginian here in central Virginia, um, not near the extremes of northern Virginia or Richmond, um, I'm not sure that we're going to be represented anymore. So that's On Point listener Tony, and he's in Harrisonburg, Virginia, about 51,000 people in the Shenandoah Valley. And he told us that more liberal areas of Virginia, he sees those areas as getting a bigger share of state funding and somehow more representation. They get the representation and they get the money and uh, they they leave us out. And we don't appreciate that anymore. So Harrisonburg is part of Rockingham County, and that county voted for Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin by a margin of 75 percent to 24 when Youngkin was elected in 2021. I'm not sure that the media is doing a very good job in uh, representing us in your coverage. You are, as your coverage is obviously very biased. You're trying to tie everything to as a referendum on uh, Glenn Youngkin when it was, um, that's not what it was necessarily. Hmm. So, Leader Scott, how would you respond to Tony? First of all, he just doesn't think this is a referendum on uh, on Glenn Youngkin. I agree with him. It's not a referendum on Glenn Youngkin. It's a referendum on the MAGA Republican extremism, the total package. Glenn Youngkin is just the face of it now. I think uh, I, I can empathize with him because I come from a smaller community that's always been fighting for resources as well. I represent Portsmouth, Virginia, House District 88, and we're in that same fight. But what he needs to understand is that the Republicans have been in control of the House of Delegates for 22 of 24 years. So if he's not been represented by the people that he's continued to vote for, he might want to take a look at an alternative and take Mm -hmm. a look at what we've been doing. His party has been in power for 22 of 24 years. He should be asking why he's still voting for them when they have not delivered for him. Mm. Well, so but then now that the Democrats control uh, the Virginia legislature, what do you do to what do you expect to do to meet Tony's needs? I think, you know, what the beautiful thing about Virginia, it's truly a commonwealth. So when North Virginia grows, Harrisonburg grows, Portsmouth grows, Central Virginia grows, Southside, Southwest Virginia grows. We're in this together. A rising tide lifts all boats. And so we want to make sure that we're addressing the entire commonwealth. North Virginia is part of 
the economic engine of Virginia. They're huge, huge defense contracts because they're so close to D.C. But we know that we can make sure that we take care of every single Virginia, every single community and meet those needs in those communities. So I'm hopeful that he'll give us an opportunity, give us a chance, and we'll deliver like the people that he's voted for have not delivered for mm. Well, Delegate Don Scott, he's Democratic leader in Virginia's House of Delegates, just won re-election this week and could become the state's first black speaker of the House. Leader Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Back with more. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about what message or clues, if any, this week's very interesting set of state and local elections across the country, what clues they have for 2024. Now, we just heard from uh, the Democratic leader in Virginia's House of Delegates, because now the Democrats uh, lead or are are, uh, in control of the Virginia state legislature. And uh, Leader Scott, Leader Don Scott, told us that he thinks a lot of this had to do with reproductive rights. Well, there's no question about that in Ohio. Uh, because there, voters overwhelmingly chose to enshrine uh, reproductive rights in the state's constitution. And it's very interesting the kinds of calls we got from listeners. Here's Ohio listener Roy Qualls in Yellow Springs. He says he's morally opposed to abortion, but does not think it's the government's job to ban it. I believe that human life begins at conception and that abortion is an awful thing. But I supported this amendment. I would urge any woman contemplating that choice to consult with the best medical, family, and spiritual resources at her disposal. She certainly does not need me or the government to tell her what she has to do. She is accountable to our creator for her decision. That's listener Roy Qualls in Yellow Springs. Here's Solve Spilness in Athens, Ohio. She was part of a group of women that organized to get Ohio's ballot measure passed. We organized pro-issue one presence at our farmer's market, in front of the county courthouse, at every event we could think of, parades, made calls, canvassed, distributed 500 yard signs, bought billboard space, and much more. We beat our extremist Republican leadership, despite their egregious lies, manipulations, and power moves to defeat us. We won. That's another Ohio listener reacting to 
the election or, or results uh, from this week. Well, joining us now is Simon Rosenberg. He's a longtime Democratic strategist, author of a substack called Hopium Chronicles, and he's with us from Washington. Simon, welcome to you. It's great to be here, Magna. Okay, and also with us today is Jack Beatty. He's On Point's news analyst. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magna. Hello, Simon. So, Simon, my first question is actually for you, because, of course, in the immediate aftermath of Tuesday of this week, uh, Wednesday and Thursday, there was a lot of um, even somewhat surprise celebration from Democrats saying that, yes, the issue is loud and clear. They have to take abortion protection into the 2024 election. Do you think, though, that uh, once the immediate excitement dies down, reality is going to set in again about the difference between state and local elections and national elections in a presidential year? Well, two points. I think, first of all, since Dobbs in the spring of 2022, we have been winning in special elections, in November elections, in mayoral elections, in ballot initiatives, uh, in dozens and dozens of races in all sorts of states all across the country. It's been an incredible performance by the Democratic Party, and it's why the Republicans are so worried. We keep overperforming expectations in race after race throughout this entire year, for example. I mean, there were 33 House and Senate special elections across the country this year in the State House, and we overperformed our 2020 numbers by over six points. And in 2020, we won the election by four and a half points, right? So to be that far ahead of 2020 in race after race across the country is a remarkable performance. So we feel really good about where things are. And heading to 2024, I would much rather be us than them. I mean, in the last four presidential elections, we've averaged 51 percent of the vote. Republicans have averaged 46 percent of the vote. So as we've grown the electorate and gotten bigger, Democrats have actually gotten stronger. And so I think as we head into 2024, we feel like we have momentum at our back. We're going to have a strong ticket. Joe Biden's been a good president. And they're going to have Donald Trump. And I think it's going to be very hard to sell Donald Trump and MAGA extremism to the public, as Don Scott was saying earlier today. Mm. Well, Jack Beatty, uh, Simon's exactly right about percentage growth, but that doesn't necessarily equate into capturing the Electoral College, of course. But love to hear your thoughts on this, Jack. Well, I think uh, Ron Brownstein in The Atlantic had a felicitous formulation. He said, Democrats are doing better at the polls than in the polls. Mm. And evidence for that abounds. For example, uh, in 18 Ohio counties that Trump carried in 2020, uh, reproductive rights won this time. However, a poll among, exit poll among people who voted for reproductive rights showed they thought Joe Biden shouldn't run, 72 percent of them. So that the polls and at the in the polls and at the polls, the Dems are doing much better. Yes, in all these elections. But uh, the the week began with that dolorous for the Democrats poll uh, of battleground states in The Times, which I think um, uh, chilled the entire Democratic establishment because it, it showed Trump up and, and, um, and Biden j- j- just, not, just not making it. Mm. You know, Jack, point, point well taken uh, on that. But I do wonder if the same could potentially apply to uh, Republican races in a presidential 
year, right? Because, hey, first of all, we're, we're a year out from 2024 Election Day. Uh, so I always have a, take a major like salt mine full of salt with these early, early polls. But on the other hand, you know, in uh, in 2016, there were a lot of people say, you know, who wouldn't answer uh, about whether or not they would vote for Donald Trump or their answer did not match at all in the way they voted at the polls in 2016. So, I mean, couldn't we couldn't we also say in that case in a presidential year, Republicans do better at the polls than in the polls, Jack? I, I take that point. However, it's a different it, it's a different electorate, isn't it? Uh, an electorate in, in next year is going to be as much as 60 percent larger than than the turnout in this off year election. And, uh, you know, experts say that's that's a Trumpier electorate. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 these special elections Taken, you know, they they did very well. Democrats did very well in suburban areas among affluent people, professional people. But it's the more blue collar and pink collar voter who is going to turn out uh, in next year, and uh, and and it's, in other words, we can't really prognosticate on the basis of these numbers to that result. Yeah, Simon, I'd love to hear your response to that. I don't really agree. Um, I mean, I think that. What matters more in our looking at data, what matters more is how people are voting than how people are responding to polls. And we've had I just want to go back to a little bit of history. Right. I mean, since 2018, Democrats, we won the 2018 election. We won the 2020 election. We won the 2022 election. We won the 2023 election. And there's just no reason to believe unless something dramatic happens with the economy or with, uh, you know, things overseas, that things are going to turn all of a sudden sour to the Democrats, particularly when the driving force of our politics since 2018 has been opposition and fear of MAGA. And in 2024, we're going to have super MAGA on the ballot. Trump will be even more extreme and more radical than he'd been in previous elections because Two big things have happened since 2020. First of all, abortion, which you've discussed. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is the Republicans tried to end American democracy in 2021. And there is an incredible sense in the American electorate that something has gone deeply wrong with Republicans, that there is fear of them coming to power, which is why you're seeing this continued high turnout, high performance. Democrats are raising more money than we've ever raised before. And because there is the driving force in our politics for years now has been fear and opposition to MAGA. That is going to be on steroids next year in 2024 with Trump on the ballot. So the way I see this is that Democrats have a significant structural advantage now. I mean, in that New York Times poll, there was a question about Trump versus a generic Democrat. And a generic Democrat beat Trump by eight points. And that means that there's a structural deficiency for the Republicans, as we've been seeing in election after election over the last 18 months. So I think Democrats, look, it's going to be a tough election. We have a lot of work to do. But in every way possible, I'd much rather be us than them. And I'm very optimistic about our chances next year. Simon, uh, Joe Biden is not a generic Democrat. Right. So I mean, and, how, how much faith can you put in that that poll of Trump against a generic? Well, because Democrat? because I think I think we also know from polling that voters don't really know what Joe Biden's done, and when they're informed, his numbers go way up. Listen, that's what a campaign's for, right? We have a year to make our case. I think we have a very strong case for re-election. I think Joe Biden's been a good president. I think the country's better off. I think he's managed very challenging international events adroitly and aggressively. 
And I think that's what a campaign's for. And as somebody who's been doing this for over 30 years, I can see our path to victory. We can make the case he's been a good president. We're going to have a strong agenda for the second term. How do you sell Trump? I mean, really, truly. I mean, he's going to be the worst major party nominee in American history. He'll have been, you know, he had 91 felony counts against him. He'll have been convicted of sexually assaulting a woman. I mean, the, the, the challenge of selling him, we have more ammunition to describe mm. the Republicans as being out of the mainstream and dangerous to the Republic than any political set of political operatives have ever had. And so I'm very confident that when you take our record of success, the strong agenda we're going to have for the second term, and the awfulness of Trump and MAGA, the fear and awfulness of Trump and MAGA, that we're going to be fine in 2024. But we've got to go work hard, make the case, do the work, and I think we'll be successful next yeah. year. So, Jack, I completely hear uh, what Simon's saying in terms of uh, you know January 6, 2021 being... Uh, you know, the one of the darkest days in American democracy, plus all of the the lies that led up to it and followed. He's absolutely right uh, about that. But again, I I will let this point go in a second. But I'm just curious about how how much presidential election years differ from um, uh, off election years or off non-presidential election years, because at the same time, while Simon is is accurately listing all the strengths um, that can be lined up behind a Joe Biden presidency or re-election campaign, Jack, you know that uh, in the past, what, couple of months, there's been a whole raft of books coming out from various political, uh, Democratic political analysts saying, well, you know, the Achilles heel for the Democrats is our, our other social issues, right? Um, social justice issues, issues about um, how Democrats talk about race, uh, et cetera. Do you think that it's possible that um, with the pattern of why Democrats won this week, that perhaps nationally as a strategy, they may step back from the kinds of uh, sort of race and gender issues that uh, were trumpeted so uh, loudly in previous elections? Yes. Uh, and certainly that isn't Joe Biden's idiom. He hasn't, you know, that's a sort of the progressive strain in the party to which he tips his hat and says very little. So I don't expect much of that from him. On the other hand, he is he is a strange um, proponent of uh, reproductive rights. You know, there was a there was a, um, uh, a, a couple of years ago, there was a website called uh, When Will Biden Speak on Abortion? And there was a big, big headline, barely. Uh, he used the word abortion in a State of the Union speech this year, but the past year he hadn't. And he's, it, it, it's, it's not an issue that comes easy to him. In an interview in 2006, he said, I'm a practicing Catholic. And it's the biggest dilemma for me in terms of uh, conform, comporting my religious views with my political responsibilities. Uh, another way to read that is with my political uh, ambitions. And he moved in the direction of his political ambitions in 2019 when he abandoned his longtime support of the Hyde Amendment, which limited... Mm. Uh, federal spend, spending uh, on on people getting abortions, but the point is, it's he's never comfortable even addressing the issue. He will quickly shift it to privacy or something else. So yes, they've got a good issue. 
they don't necessarily have the candidate who represents that issue. Well, maybe they don't need Joe Biden to talk about uh, abortion exclusively because, I mean, after Dobbs, uh, as we saw on Tuesday, everybody else in the Democratic Party is to great effect. So with that in mind, let's turn to Kentucky, a very, very important and interesting state where uh, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear won re-election on Tuesday. And Austin Horn joins us. He's in Lexington. He's a politics. He's the politics reporter for the Lexington Herald leader. Austin, welcome to you. Thanks for having me, Magna. So how would you describe essentially what the Bashir playbook was that propelled him to re-election. Yeah, I think the first thing to know about Andy Bashir is that he's part of a political dynasty that you really couldn't have cooked up a better one for a state in a lab. Um, his, gov- his, uh, his father was governor uh, for two terms before him, and he was first elected to statewide office in 1979. So a long time ago, he has both long uh, history in the state and sort of recent contact in that in that sort of Bashir dynasty. And he's also built a kind of name ID like a lot of governors have in the COVID era. Uh, but this year, you know, you guys were talking about abortion. Abortion really did play a big role in this state. Um, the, the governor hit particularly on uh, the state's trigger ban on abortion. We have essentially a near complete ban. There are no exceptions on rape or incest, uh, which I, I think a lot of people that we've seen in polling shows that uh, shows that that's been very unpopular among Kentuckians. And uh, he, I think, the turning point of the race, I would say, is an ad that he mm-hmm. aired featuring a young woman who was 12 years old uh, when she was raped by her stepfather. So Austin, hang on here for a second because we have that ad, uh, and in. Uh, in fact, uh, Andy Brashear thanked the woman in that ad, Hadley Duvall, um, and the uh, the Brashear campaign ran this ad a lot in Kentucky. In it, we're going to hear it here, but in it, she sits and talks directly to the camera. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. Daniel Cameron would give us none. Austin Horn, I understand that Hadley Duvall, that she approached the Bashir campaign and wanted to send a message like this? Yeah, it it was kind of like a, I, I think, sort of a combination of um, her putting that information out there and then the Bashir campaign uh, contacting her. Um, so it, it's a little bit of both, I would say. Uh, but it it really goes to show how, I mean, you know, it, if abortion is a losing issue for the GOP in Kentucky, then where is it a winning issue, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, we're a deeply conservative state. And, uh, and, and yeah, I, I think they, they really effectively sort of chipped away on sort of the margin of the debate that was most advantageous to them in a, in a really smart way the Bashir campaign did. I see. Austin, hang on for just a second, because as you can hear, we've got to take a quick break. There's a couple more questions I want to ask you about what Kentucky can tell us about 2024 uh, when we come back. So this is on point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And before we get back to today's show uh, about this week's election results. Jack, since you're with us on the the live hour here today, I just want to congratulate you that the jackpot that's a special on our podcast feed, it's reached its 10th episode. How time flies, Jack, doesn't it? (laughs) When we're having such fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the jackpot, uh, as folks who listen to it know, is our special feature on our podcast feed where Jack really kind of unwinds his analysis about uh, aspects of life and politics in America today that you may not know about. And Jack, give me the 10-second promo of what's in that in the jackpot that people can listen to today. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> I'll give you a second. I'm suddenly... It's because you're oh, getting all choked I... up about how, how well the jackpot no. is doing. <laughs> I I beg your pardon. (coughs) Uh, We're talking about the... uh, Oh, gosh, I've just got something. That's okay, Jack. I'm going to cover for you here. So Jack is in the Jackpod, talks about... uh, The title of it is Last Exit or Live Free and Die. And it's a cautionary tale about the minefield that early primaries and caucuses are in a presidential election year. So... If you're not already subscribed to the On Point feed, go ahead and do that. And today you can listen to the 10th episode of hopefully an infinite number of The Jackpot. So that's in our podcast feed. Today we are talking about uh, what lessons, what clues, if any, could this week's uh, state and local set of elections have for 2024. And Jack is with us. Simon Rosenberg is with us as well as a longtime Democratic strategist. And Austin Horn joins us from Lexington, Kentucky. He's politics reporter at the Lexington. Herald leader. Austin, I had a couple more questions for you about uh, the lessons to learn for Democrats and Republicans in from Kentucky. First of all, you had mentioned that um, Governor Bashir ran a very disciplined campaign focusing mm-hmm. on um, abortion because it had the largest sort of, uh, what do you say, the, the potential uh, gain in voters given uh, Kentucky's strict abortion laws. How like what else did Bashir talk about uh, on the campaign trail? And I'm asking because from the national perspective, I saw a bunch of headlines that kind of uh, summed up to can a Joe Biden playbook work in deep red Kentucky? I mean, is that what Bashir did? Yeah, I think there are some things to take away from that. Uh, Abortion was obviously a a big part of it. And that's, I I think, going to be to some extent uh, part of the Biden playbook. Uh, but a unique to Bashir thing is is really that name ID that he's built up. And as an incumbent governor, he's gotten a lot of FaceTime with voters uh, through the COVID pandemic. He was on everybody's TV pretty much every single day. But one, I think, Biden particular 
sort of strategy that he used was he he sort of regionalized uh, his appeal to voters uh, when it came to infrastructure projects. Mm. Uh, the Northern Kentucky uh, sort of contingent, which is a large suburban part of the state that's pretty conservative, um, he won that region, and he did it by really, really trumpeting the Brent Spence Bridge, which is this really vital uh, infrastructure corridor. And he did it, and he emphasized over and over and over again uh, without tolls. Uh, um, so he, he sort of picked a big project in each part of the state and really, really emphasized that, which you could see President Biden doing uh, once that sort of that campaign really kicks up. And then another thing that I think uh, could could maybe be parlayed on a national stage is is kind of the the very personal aspect of Bashir's campaign. He he said it over and over again to voters, and it was his final ad uh, was "You know me, mm. uh, you know me as a person. You think I am a solid guy, and therefore, why would you fire me?" Um, which I I wouldn't be shocked to see that. Uh, be part of uh, President Biden's message, especially if he runs against uh, somebody who's as controversial and I, I think divisive at times as uh, the former president. Mm. Well, Austin Horn, politics reporter at the Lexington Herald Leader, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Magna. So, Simon Rosenberg, give us your take on uh, the clues from Kentucky. Yeah, that was a great interview, and I think I learned a lot actually listening to that. Um, and uh, listen, I, I think there is this universal lesson that from all these elections, which is that the Democrats continue to overperform in all parts of the country. The Republicans continue to struggle. Um, you know, we are optimistic about what that means for 2024, but recognize, you know, we have an awful lot of work to do. I mean, there's no there's no illusion about that. But we can't undercut the enormity of what's happened over the last 18 months. I mean, we've been, you know, we got to, in 2022, we not only in a what was supposed to be a red wave year, we got to 59% of the vote in Colorado, 57% in Pennsylvania, 55% in Michigan, 54 in um, New Hampshire. And this year, we flipped two very large Republican cities, Jacksonville and Colorado Springs. We got to 56% in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, 57% in Ohio. We won in Kentucky. And so right now, Democrats are winning in all regions of the country, even in deep red places. We even made Mississippi competitive, right, which nobody thought was going to happen. And so, you know, we're we're pleased with our performance. And Republicans, as you've pointed out in your introduction, are worried. I mean, they're worried. They keep losing. And, and you know, Vivek, the other night in the Republican debate, talked about how they just keep losing election after election after election. And that's important because it's not just about how voters feel. I mean, elections and campaigns have, you have to raise money. I mean, there's tactics involved, right? You have to raise money and have put ads on the air. You have to, you know, do GOTV and field organizations. And right now, the Democratic Party is strong. We keep winning everywhere. We're raising tons of money. We have really good candidates. And the Republicans, I think, are really struggling, not just at a message level, but even at a tactical level. Some of their state parties have run out of money. They've had huge issues about whether the early vote is good or not so good, right? Their candidates are not raising a lot of money. And so right now, as we head into 2024, there's one strong party that keeps winning across the country and another party that's weak, divided, and keeps losing. Mm. So we're going to return to Virginia in just a second here. But Jack, if... uh um, hoping that all is well with you, actually, first and foremost, I just want to say that. But uh, but second okay. of all, um, 
You know, given the, the, the numbers and the data that uh, Simon has just laid out there in terms of the strength of the Democratic Party, um, I'm still s- drawing my mind back to what you said earlier about do those numbers and that data, do they match voter perception within the party and beyond of uh, the Biden administration? Because, of course, I, I, next year is just going to be, a pre- it is a presidential election year. There's no doubt about that. It will be seen as something of a referendum on the Biden administration. I mean, is there a gap there? I, I think there is. Uh, and, you know, Simon, that panoply of success, that sounds great. What do all those instances have in common, though? They don't involve Joe Biden. He's not on the ballot. Uh, And the polls showing that people do not want him to run again, even many Democrats, I don't know what the latest percentage is, but it's it's ominous, don't want him to run. And his and, and, you know, not out of necessarily any antagonism to his policies, but it's but it's it's his it's his age and his uh, you know his his waning powers, and I think that's that's not going to go away. And strangely enough, people think Trump, who uh, is given to this you know uh, vague baffle gab where he just says anything that comes into his head, people think he's sharper by 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 much over over Biden, and so. That's an issue that just isn't going to go away, and it's almost like a threshold issue. Can we trust the country in this man, with this man for the next four years, which would take him to nearly age 90? Mm. Okay, well, perhaps it's because of my own uh, background as having been a local reporter for a long time. I actually believe that local races and issues and how voters vote on them are the purest measure of what matters to people. So I want to turn back around to school board <laughs> elections that have happened. I'm with you, Megan. Yeah. <laughs> that have, I mean, because the, the rubber meets the road when it comes to local yeah. governance. So let's go back to Virginia uh, and specifically take a quick look at what happened in Loudoun County regarding the school board there. Coy Farrell joins us. Coy is editor at the Loudoun Times-Mirror. It's a weekly paper in Loudoun County. Coy, welcome to On Point. Thank you. Hello. Okay, so first of all, I just want to play a little bit of uh, archival tape. This is uh, from October 2022, because Loudoun County school board meetings, like many across the country, have become scenes of very heated public comment. Uh, So here's one example. Parent Uh, Clint Thomas at the Loudoun County School Board meeting, again, October of last year. Parents, listen up. This school board is actively participating in destroying the basic building block of our society, the nuclear family. This board gives lip service and strategic goal 1.3 to prioritizing care for students and providing a safe and affirming learning environment. Yet it's only for some students, not the majority of students, including girls, who still have to grapple with the reality that this board allows a biological male in girls' restrooms and locker rooms. This has become a cult, and this board is actively involved in the eight stages of cult-like behavior when it comes to pushing your equity agenda on our kids. Okay, so, Coy, there was a lot of passionate uh, uh, outrage, I should say, uh, at school board meetings in Loudoun County. What happened on Tuesday? Sure. So um, long story short, I think that uh, that public speaker represents um, many people in Loudoun County, but 
he does not represent the majority. At least that's not what we saw on Tuesday. Uh, the majority of voters voted to keep the status quo. Um, we uh, had a board, uh, or we have a board right now that has six Democratic endorsed candidates. Uh, we will have a board starting January one that has six Democratic uh, endorsed candidates. It's a, it's a nine member board. Uh, so while the incumbents, uh, the two incumbents who who ran this year lost. Um, I think that uh, the majority of voters are happy with the general direction um, that the that the school division is going, even if um, the the individuals on that school board uh, either did not run or uh, or, or, or were ousted, um, much because of uh, these very high profile uh, 2021 student on student sexual assaults, and. Um, that really made Loudon uh, kind of a proxy battlefield for this larger culture war uh, that that you know was fought in school divisions across the country. Okay, Coy, this is so interesting. I just want to uh, repeat what you said to be sure I heard it right. So, the uh, in terms of the individuals on the school board, um, two incumbents lost, but the makeup, the political makeup, if I can put it that way, of the school board mm-hmm. remained the same in terms of it's all Democrats. Yes, yeah, so it's it's really fascinating. Um, so uh, again, Loudoun County, you know, has has been in the news and it has been under extreme scrutiny. Um, and so on this nine nine member uh, board, only two incumbents uh, ran, both both Democratic endorsed. Uh-huh. And so there was certainly discontent with the way uh, that that school board met the individual school board members across across the uh, the political spectrum handled this the response to those twenty twenty one and sexual assaults. Um, but uh, I think when you take the individual Individuals out. Um, voters said we we uh, like the direction the school division is going. Uh, we feel that they're they're uh, doing you know the best for our kids, um, and they rejected arguments uh, that you know essentially cast uh, the school division under Democratic leadership as you know an indoctrination factory that was so focused on um, accommodating transgender students and LGBTQ students and uh, and racial equity initiatives that uh, that academics were falling behind. I think voters by and large rejected that argument. Um, and though we'll have all new school board members, the individuals, the I think the direction of the school division will remain uh, remain the same. Yeah. So this is why, again, I just think that local elections are so important because voters were actually voting on th- individual things that school board members were doing, voting on, advocating. Um, we actually got some calls as well from uh, Loudoun County voters who were glad that the whole school board changed over. Um, because they felt that uh, those previous Democrats had failed on, um, you know, some of those issues that you talked about, protecting students and, and whatnot. So in a sense, uh, Coy, just in a couple of seconds here, does that mean that school, things like school board elections, we saw a lot of turnover in different places across the country of uh, voters rejecting some of the more extreme candidates uh, for different reasons there. Is it not a good measure of how those same voters might vote on a, na- on a national level? I think voters, you know, this is a a affluent suburb of Washington, D.C. And I think voters here, not just in the school board race, but in in other races uh, in in Northern Virginia and across Virginia, I think voters voted for moderation and the status Mm -hmm. quo. I don't think um, there were were any high profile races that uh, where the winner um, had campaigned on radical changes to the existing structure. But I think that um, uh, voters are 
the majority of voters were at least happy with the way things are. They wanted to keep existing abortion law in place. They wanted to keep existing school board, uh, school policy in place and certainly were not amenable to, uh, to radically changing um, anything that is, is already in place here, uh, at least in Virginia. Mm. Well, Coy Farrell, editor at the Loudoun Times-Mirror, it's a weekly paper in Loudoun County, First of all, I want to tell everyone, support your local journalists. They are the last window into your local politics, and it's very important. But, Koi, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we've got only about a a minute left here. Uh, So I just want to hear quickly from both Jack and Simon. Jack, it sounds like, in a sense, uh, as Koi said, one of the takeaway lessons from 2023 of this week is voters, they're, they're tired of the crazy. Mm. Do you think? Yes, they are. Yes, yes. Well, that's a good sign, uh, probably for the Democrats. They're not crazy. And, you know, notably on the transgender front, Virginia elected a transgender woman, Danica Roem, to the House of Delegates. And that first one in the South. So that's quite a uh, that's quite a that's quite a moment, I think, for uh, for for, uh, transgender rights. Okay, Simon, you get it. Just a few seconds here because yeah, MAGA. Yeah. Listen, MAGA. MAGA is a failed politics for the Republican Party. It's failed in 2018, and 2020, and 2022, and 2023, and it's going to fail in 2024 with Trump. I caution anyone though to have too much pride, lest there is a fall that happens after that. Because who knows what happens <laughs> during a presidential election year? But Simon Rosenberg, longtime Democratic strategist and author of a Substack called Hopium Chronicles. Thank you, Simon, for joining us. Thanks so much, Magna. And Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst. Great to have you on this hour, Jack. And and everyone, go subscribe to our podcast so you can get the jackpot every Friday. But Jack, I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you, Magna. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.